Welcome to Bear Books for the love of indie. We're here to highlight and amplify self-published authors. This episode, April and I have both read At Hell's Gate, which is written by Richard John Thornton. I've bought the paperback copy because I've taken to buying the actual books rather than the Kindle editions because I'm compiling a bit of a collection of indie author books on my bookcase and it's looking rather impressive. So I'm very happy to add this one to it. A novel based in a whole heap of truth with characters you can relate to, which makes what happens to one of them all the more disconcerting. Richard joined us for a chat about the book and how, having been on that journey himself, he felt compelled to share the story as it kind of wrote itself. Yes, we had an interesting and enlightening interview with Richard. You do have to excuse the croaky voice. I am suffering from laryngitis, but the show needs to go on. Here's how the interview went with Richard. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you, April. Thank you, Daisy. Thanks ever so much for agreeing to join us. In typical April mode, I'm just going to dive in and actually ask the first question. Wanting to talk about your writing to begin with. So what actually drew you to storytelling? Where did it all start? I think I've always had a creative spur in terms of creative writing. I mean, when I was at school, there's no real scope to pursue it. Most of the English lessons were geared towards handwriting and sentence structure and punctuation and grammar. And of course, as you get older into your, well, it was fourth and fifth year, and I think it's year 10 and 11 these days, it was all driven towards the exams and reading the classics for the tests put by the examiners. So the, the actual scope for producing your own stories was minimal, I think. I mean, I don't know if this is similar to other people's experiences of my generation. I think. It's taken me 30 years to realise that I can actually do it. And once I started, I couldn't stop. So is it Hell's Gate your first, second, third? Where, where, where is this in the rundown of your creative writing? Well, I wrote my first novel in 2004, and I think Hell's Gate appeared in about 2008. And I think it was about my fourth or fifth novel, yeah. All oh, right, OK. So you're getting to be a bit of an expert then. Well, since I've been publishing my own work, I mean, I found Amazon Publishing by accident. I didn't even know it existed, can you believe? It was, a, it was an impromptu conversation to wedding of all places. And a friend of a friend said, try Amazon Publishing. And I didn't even know what it was. So I went on there and I thought, well, I might polish two or three up and put them out on Kindle with a view to getting some impartial reviews back, which I did. And then by September last year, the reviews were really good. And that really gave me some impetus to... Uh, use Amazon as a process in tandem with fine-tuning what I'd already done years ago. Slowly but surely, the conveyor belt started rolling and there's more to come. Can't stress how important reviews are. If you've read an indie book and you've really enjoyed it, it would be just the icing on the cake for all of the authors out there if you could pop a review online. It would mean such a lot. So as for this book in particular then, At Hell's Gate, I just want to read the back jacket so everybody knows a little bit about your teaser for this particular story. So for dedicated family man Kurt Osborne, an invitation to a colleague's 40th birthday celebration abroad promises a well-earned diversion from the rigours of everyday routine. A break in Prague for six working class lads has all the makings of a dynamic occasion and the group's vibrant mood swiftly dominates proceedings. 
But despite his initial excitement regarding the trip, Kurt soon lives to regret that his journey into unknown territory had ever begun. It's titled At Hell's Gate. Why, Richard? Well, for those that have read the book, we'll realise quite late on in the, in the book, Kurt realises the danger he was in, but he didn't realise at the time. And it's only then he realises he was in a perilous situation, probably the most perilous situation anybody could find themselves in. And Hell's Gate, it's like he was there, but thankfully it didn't open for him. It just seemed a natural fit for the type of story that it was. I didn't really think too much into it. The, the story suggested the title, really. I think the title came after, which is quite unusual for me, because normally the title is the first thing that I nail down before I even start writing. As, as Kurt's realisations conclude in his own head, that's where he was, at Hell's Gate, he realises. Yeah. It was a terrifying ordeal he went through, for sure. Well, I've got to be honest. I mean, the, the story actually is 95% true. Now, that might come as a surprise to you. It was based on a trip I went on. Even as I was on the trip and these little things were happening, these incidents and things I was observing, it was like I was walking through a book. It occurred to me actually out there in Prague, this doesn't need inventing. I'm actually re- walking through this. It's, uh, it took me only a few weeks to decide I was going to lay it down. There was no scope for invention. It wasn't necessary. It was already done. I'd lived through it. And I just thought, well, I'm going to put six different characters on the same path and see where it goes. Yeah. Just a bit of an experiment, really, just to see what feelings it stirred back in me from the trip. But obviously, I needed some kind of a conclusion or some kind of jeopardy involved, which obviously didn't happen to me. So, uh, what can I say? A sinister element into the story, which came back home with one of the lads. Yeah, it certainly did. Yeah, the situation that he finds himself in, or found himself in, he brings back home with him, and he still doesn't realise till weeks after what's happened. I think the nature of going abroad into these places... Now everyone's going there. I don't think people realise they're putting themselves in a bit of a vulnerable position at times. You sort of like accept or, or, or know that the Netherlands is, is what it is and Amsterdam is what it is, etc. Yeah. And it's got the most famous red light district possibly in the world or in Europe. But when you look at Prague, you realise that actually what used to be or still is an absolutely beautiful city with lots and lots of architecture. Prague has become quite a a degenerate city. And one of the things I sort of wanted to ask, you you sort of said, yes, it's, it's based on a trip that you took to Prague. So those characters, did you observe those characters when you were there? The characters who went on the trip or the characters in Prague that we encountered? The characters in Prague that you encountered? Well, they, they, they existed. They were real-life people, yeah. I didn't invent anything on that. There, there was a real... I mean, we were only there two nights, but 48 hours is a long time to sit and observe, and there was a real strange, sinister underbelly to things. Like on the... I mean, Prague's... I think I'm right in saying it's nicknamed the crown jewel of Europe these days. But I stood on that bridge and I watched kids pickpocketing. <laughs> you can't believe it when I'm talking about it, but it's happened. And then, you know, getting accosted by the the hobo in the gutter 
he just walks up from nowhere and follows us in the pub and, you know, starts confronting us, touching us. It's, the invention wasn't necessary. It was all laid out for me, and all I did was retype it. And then, of course, there was the incident in the, the pub late at night where this couple decided to attach themselves to our crew. God knows why. They couldn't even speak our language. Weird. Very, very weird experience. Yeah. I've talked to lads now that I was on the trip with, and they remember these things, but they didn't view it as anything to be wary of. It was just all part and parcel of part the trip, part of the experience and the culture. And But I'm thinking to myself when I got back home, I'm thinking, that's not normal. These things don't happen in normal life. There's a just seediness about the place, which I didn't find off-putting at the time, but it's just interesting to observe. And I'm just thinking, one of these lads needs to come unstuck in my story. Yeah, I quite like the fact that you chose Kurt, who is the most straight-laced out of all of your characters in the story, to be the one that came unstuck, as you, as you call it. I think that made it a little bit more believable. And talking of believable, I have to say, I have worked in logistics and in warehousing, and I have met Kurt, Trev and Gary. I've worked with them. I recognise these <laughs> characters and it made it, I think, a lot more relatable for me as a reader just because I recognised a lot of the traits in the characters. Yeah. Well, I mean, the characters I chose, I mean, three of them, Trevor, Gary, Kurt, they're in my working environment as well. So I'm familiar <laughs> with how they bounce off each other. Yeah. Um, they're all very different personalities. Like you say, Kurt is the most reserved. He was yeah. the most reticent about the whole thing. And yet he got there and he was enjoying it the most. And unfortunately, he was the one that got tripped up in the end. Trevor is everyone's favourite loudmouth slob. He's not even based <laughs> on anybody. Um, and Gary is obviously the, the single lad that enjoys life. He likes a smoke and a drink and a good time. But the important thing with the characters was to make them all different place them all in the same environment to see how they each react to each other and to what's going off. And like I say, none of them were really based on anybody. I just took aspects of different personalities that we know in life, took them all into the mix and see what came out. The thing I was wary of, of course, was the language. Yeah. I just want to chip in if I can, because yeah. both you, Richard, and Daisy are saying, well, I've met these people. I remember ringing Daisy up last week and saying... Do they swear like this in warehouses? Because I've never worked in that kind of an environment. I was very wary that um, a lot of readers might short page number eight or nine or ten and say, I can't handle this language. Fair enough, they've taken offence. But, and I couldn't really sugarcoat the speech because, like Daisy said, it is natural for, for, for the cursing, the profanity, the gutter-level references, it's done every 30 seconds of every conversation every day. But, every single yeah, sentence, yeah. You, you wouldn't believe how well-behaved I'm being at the moment, seriously. No, it's, <laughs> I, I swear and I don't even know it. I didn't realise that in this day and age, that kind of thing actually still went off in workplaces and it was days that said, oh, it does. 100% it does, yeah. I was wary of including all that kind of language, but... I thought, well, it's going to detract from the entire story if I take it out. But like April says, the environments where it is commonplace are reducing. And uh, workplaces are becoming more PC now. 
it's just the way the world's gone into. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. In terms of this then, Richard, the research wasn't kind of research, it was just something that organically happened and grew. But what about your other books? How do you set about doing research for those? I write about what I know, and um, I write about human morals, really. I mean, my other novels, I've, I've got really what I call five in the series. Hell's Gate is one of them, where they're like kitchen sink thrillers. Normal characters in normal everyday situations... Anyone who's read one or two or more will know that there's common threads in each book, like there's a family and there's schooling and there's kids and jobs. It, it all ties in with a normal grounding. And I find that interesting then to throw on major source of jeopardy into their lives in whatever way. I mean, Deliverers from Evil, for instance, um, it's an abduction story, which on the face of it is going to be harrowing before anyone even opens the front cover. But to me, it was a story that was building inside me because in the last 20, 30 years, everybody's watched on British news particularly. Crimes against children going unpunished. The children disappear. The culprits plead insanity and then live a life of luxury for the rest of their life in prison. And I'm thinking, well, I wanted to talk about deliveries from evil too much. That story came from a child who was a victim wanting retribution, which never happens in life. And I'm thinking, well, it's going to happen in my story. That was where that was driven from. Well, um, I haven't read that one, but good for you for addressing it. You, you can name the names like I can, April Jones and Millie Dowler and James Bulger, and yeah. the, the list went on and on. But it's like, you know, these people are immune from law. They just do what they want, destroy lives. And But anyway, that was the, the motivation for getting that story down. Yeah, I did wonder why it was not until like into the 20s in the chapters before the main event. What what made you plan it out that way? It was the story is more about the relationships between the guys and the way they interact with one another and and everyday stuff like planning the journey where they were going for breakfast took two chapters, which was interesting. Yeah. The characters that they see along the way and that they interact with outside of the six of them. But I did think, why? Why did you wait until in the 20s before the crux of the story arrived? What what prompted that? I think that was specifically for two reasons. First of all, that's how my weekend panned out. I wanted to relay that weekend, per se, as an enjoyable weekend abroad for the six lads, with all the banter and everything that goes along with that. The reason I left the Jeopardy until four-fifths of the way through is because it was something that Kurt was rankling with as the trip closed. He was struggling to find his memory, um, and I wanted him to take it back home with him and cause problems for him. But I also knew there would be no solution for him. He was never going to solve what happened to him. He was never actually going to identify that mad hour he had by the river because he was drugged up and it happened and he realises that he was let off the hook, literally, and he doesn't know why. I thought, well, I want to draw the audience into the good weekend and hit him on the back of the head with a hammer with this and think, Christ, I've been to Prague. That could have been me. Yeah. Having said that, I still, even now, the book's out and people have read it, reviewed it. For me, the actual source of Jeopardy where that falls between sublime and ridiculous, I'm not sure. That's got to be down to the reader to decide that it ever happened or to decide, wow, 
that was something that, you know, we've all been in situations we don't like. So as for how the ending sits or how the source of Jeopardy sits with readers, I'm not quite sure. They'll have to make their own mind up. But I didn't want that to happen earlier in the story because it would detract from the interaction beforehand, if you know what I mean. So, so was it like a diary, but with added fictional elements? What happened up until the attack all happened. That's true. Yeah. Uh, the, the chronicle of events, hour by hour, from all the lads leaving England on the plane, right up until the nightclub and the attack. After that, that's fiction. Yeah. Um, that's where the invention really kicked in. But I didn't want to overindulge in a, a complicated source of intrigue or, you know, some labyrinth of criminal organisation. I just wanted Kurt's view, because obviously the, the book is more or less through Kurt's eyes. Yeah. I wanted the realisation in him as a normal guy, sit back and think, Jesus Christ, I've got to live my life here. And I don't even realise. Kurt had nobody to talk to, Richard. Did he not well, have like any friends to confide in or...? Or to confide in Hayley, was their relationship not strong enough? And I know, like, he wasn't aware, because I don't know, like, Rehypnol or whatever drug they gave him at the time that wiped a lot of those memories. He didn't really know what had happened to him, just that right. his whole body hurt, and he didn't even know why that had happened either. Yeah. But it just felt really sad that he had nobody to even discuss the feelings with, his finer feelings inside himself. There was none of that even. Do you think that's a laddish thing from the type of guys that they were? Well, I think that certainly played its part. One of the main problems with Kurt's situation was that he struggled to express himself in words about what happened because he's not sure himself. And, of course, it's not long before he gets back off the trip that his wife's suspecting him of being up to no good because of the his card got cloned, which actually happened to me a few years ago as well. And... So he's, he's under duress at home straight away. She's suspicious of his activities out there. The lads all think it was fantastic that went out there with him. They've got no problems with the trip. And, yeah, he literally, he's cornered himself with his own thoughts, trying to find his way out of this spider's web, really. It's just a psychological mess for him. And it doesn't become any clearer until he sees that news report on TV. Oh, actually, sorry, it's in the, it's at work, isn't it, when the, the newspaper report is... Yeah, out. Colin's newspaper. Mm, yeah. yeah. Penny starts to drop with Kurt that he was in serious trouble, but all he knows is, in the, at the end of the, the doom of the story, really, all he knows is he ain't going back. He's not going to put himself in a situation where he is so vulnerable again. And that is sad. It is a sad indictment of his solitude with it, really. He's mentally isolated with his own issue. Um, yes, that's a very yeah. common thing as well, as far as the male half of the population is concerned. That's something that would need addressing more, I think, because men don't talk about the feelings enough. They don't look after themselves mentally enough. And that's very apparent in your story too. I also thought it showed a little bit as well. Whilst they were calling themselves friends, actually they weren't truly that close to one another. Yes. And the only real thing that I think that they had in common, actually, was the fact that they liked to drink. Yeah. There wasn't yeah. anything else that held them together. So once Kurt wasn't there and he wasn't drinking with them, it came across that actually he wasn't part of the clan any longer. 
I thought the whole crux de friendship hung on the fact that they all liked to go to the pub, drink and watch football. Yes, we, you hit the nail on the head, really. I mean, if I went on, I mean, there was about 12 or 14 of us, I think, and I only knew a couple. And so, yeah, you, you were... The one thing you had in common was the environment and the pubs, and uh, everything else followed after that in terms of the banter and the... the uh, the togetherness, and of course, we're back. At, once he's back in the warehouse, they're back to just being colleagues again. Normality resumes, and of course, all Trevor wants to do is book the next flight out for the next drunken episode. And of yeah. course, that is the last thing Kurt feels like doing. Yeah, because, uh, that was one of the things I picked up that because he went, he went missing, and because of their mindset, none of them were particularly worried about him. It was just like, oh well, you know. It, it, they, they made an assumption about what he was doing yeah. and who he was with, whereas ordinarily you would expect people that were fairly sort of close friends to have a conversation. If he was going to wander off and go off with somebody, to have a conversation with the others and say, right, you know, this is what's happening to me, this is where I'm going. But kind of none of that happened. So that, that to me, again, showed the very tenuous sort of friendship that they had, that they just assumed that he was off doing what they were bent on achieving, basically. Yes, and uh, obviously the, the strands of irony going right through that because Kurt is the last person would ever get involved in that kind of thing. Um, but they all assume he would be and call him lucky because they haven't managed to do it. But, but talking about the group thing and the sense of loyalty and the, the concern, I mean, when we were out there, lads would disappear for the night and then reappear at the hotel the next morning and then tell us where they'd been. So we didn't keep in close contact as such, as long as everyone stayed in Prague. So so in terms of, of your writing career then, Richard, what's next on the horizon? Um, well, I have got three books out at the moment on Kindle and paperback. Another one, another kitchen sink thriller, is going to be out next month. And then another one the month after that. Because at the moment I'm just going through a process of reproofing and polishing up so the books are written. They were written 15, 20 years ago. So I would like then to have those five thrillers out by the summer. I have a chapter structure for a brand new novel, another thriller, which I'm writing by hand at the moment. I'm just writing random chapters in any order. Just first draft, very loose and very scruffy, just nailing some ideas down. And anyone that wants to pop online and read more about you or learn more about you? Where can they find information about you, Richard? Well, I'm, I'm on Facebook. And the feedback I've had on Facebook among yourselves and many other people has been phenomenal. Absolutely unprecedented, the feedback. I just cannot believe just the, the warmth and generosity of people's opinions. Thank you so much for that, Richard. Yeah, thank you both. The opportunity, ever since you muted the idea back in January, I've been so excited just to sit and talk about my stuff. And as you know, I can talk. That's one of the um, that's common one of the th- things about authors, I think. Yeah, that's no, that's a requirement for a podcast as well. You've got to be able to talk. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and joining us, for talking about at Hell's Gate, for talking about the process, the people and yourself. It's wonderful for people to know more about an author that they're reading the books of. Yeah, thank you very thank much, you. Richard. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you, April. Brilliant. I have got to say, listening to Richard talking about the book, 
and the way he wrote it, it, it made me look at the book in a different light. Yes, I agree. While I was actually reading it, it did feel like an extremely long diary entry. And it turns out that that's basically what it was. Yeah. I was kind of wondering when I was reading it, you know, how many more pubs can we visit? How many more football matches can we watch? But when you kind of look at it and you listen to Richard, the context of the lead up to what happened to Kurt, it now makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that the book itself is really well written. Richard's got a really good knack of of being able to capture the ordinary and put it down on paper and make it interesting enough for you want to read the ordinary. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it kind of does make sense. I understand what you're saying there. Because it's ordinary people living through this experience throughout the novel, people like Trevor, for example, who is a bit of an obnoxious horse, completely self-centred and swears like a trooper. I've met people like Trevor. He is totally believable. So, yeah, and I'd have left him at home, if I'm perfectly honest. I'd have said, I'm going and we're going to have a good time, but I'm not taking that bloody Trevor. I couldn't get my head around Trevor at all and the, the amount of profanity that came out of his mouth. And I was like, does this really happen? Do people actually talk like that? But then both yourself and Richard were saying that in that work environment, that's how they talk. They do. It's like punctuation. Yeah. And I also think that a lot of Trevor's bluster is hiding the fact that actually he's not that secure in himself. His self-esteem's not brilliant. And as with a lot of people that have low self-esteem, unfortunately, the way that manifests itself is you take the piss out of other people. You put other people down. You belittle their lives in the hope it's going to make you feel a little bit better, which is unfortunate, but I think... That is the essence of what Trevor does. On reflection, it wouldn't have been as good if the profanity wasn't there. I mean, one of the things that I did pick up from the book, and and, and obviously this is something that Richard talked about on the interview, was that those guys are not actually friends. So what happened to Kurt? And I know that it takes men a lot more to open up but he just couldn't even say to any one of them, this is what's happened to me. So are they really a group of friends or are they really a group of people that just have got something in common, which is actually getting drunk and watching football and chasing women? And that to me is not the grounds for a friendship. They're not all friends, are they? They are more work acquaintances, colleagues. Even if they had been friends... There is this stigma amongst men that they don't talk about their feelings because it's not manly enough, which is a shame because they really should talk about it. It would be much nicer if men could talk to each other better than that. Yeah, but am I coming at it then from a purely female point of view? I mean, I would never go anywhere out of this country with people I didn't absolutely know. But if that had been a bunch of women and Kurt had been going off like that, there'd have been some checking involved. Whereas they just let him go. They didn't even care that he'd gone. Yeah, they just assumed he was off somewhere getting his end away. Yeah. 
despite the fact that he's the one out of the group that is happily married with a family, they just assumed anyway. Because people do, don't you think, generally have this thing about judging everyone by their own standards. If they would, then Kurt probably was too. It showed me through the book, and whether or not this was Richard's intention when he wrote it, that there was a lot of assumptions being made by these people. There were. I mean, even when Curtis did want to talk to his family and respond to the messages that they were missing him and he was missing them, the guys were just like, get off your phone. They just completely belittle it because they don't yeah. live it. I don't think that they even try and understand. No. Someone else might have a different life and different ethics or morals maybe than they have. I mean, when, when I was reading the book, I kind of, I don't think I was thinking about any of this. But actually, like I said, talking to Richard made me view the book in a completely different light. Yeah. Made me look a little bit deeper into the human relationships that were going on within the book. Made me look at the way that people were treating each other. And I have got to say that one of the things that I do think about this book is it's actually cleverly written. In what way? When you stop and you think, Richard has captured the essence of human morality slash immorality really well. Do you think that's because he's recounting an actual experience and these are the lives of the people that lived through it with him? Or do you think he's put enough of a spin on it from his own point of view? I think he's done a really, really good job capturing human, what's the word I'm looking for, indifference. Okay, yeah, I'll take that. Just to play devil's advocate a little bit here, I think that waiting until you're into the 20s in the chapters to wait for the event that happened is a very long time to wait for something to happen. But I know the relationships were very important to Richard as he was writing it. He wanted to concentrate on that. But the book is titled At Hell's Gate. The bad things that happened and the crux of the story was almost halfway through the book. I think that's an awful long time to wait. That could have happened a lot sooner. And the other thing was the actual event took a chapter. But earlier in the book, Richard spent two chapters talking about going for breakfast and the conversations that they had and where they went and the relationship with the waiter. And there was a lot more detail and a lot more time spent going for breakfast than there was spent with the actual event itself and how traumatic it was, how frightening it was, how close to death Curtis came. He could have expanded that by a considerable amount. I don't think you're playing devil's advocate there because I actually agree with you. Yeah. But I kind of get it now that there had to be that build-up to what happened, but I'm absolutely on the same page as you. The experience that Kurt went through could have been a lot longer, could have been in a lot more detail. But one of the things I picked up, and it's not a criticism of such, is that the rest of the book, up to that point, was Richard drawing on what actually happened and when he got to the point, what Kurt was going through was completely fiction. Yeah. 
Okay, so maybe experience would say that in future novels, maybe that sort of information that you've waited for for 20-something chapters is going to be meatier when you get there. Yeah, what I want to do now is read another one of Richard's books and maybe look, compare, because this might just be something that he felt that he had to do. Yeah. This was my book choice from the beginning, predominantly based on what was written on the back cover. Yeah. And you're right, it was. I won't use the word disappointing because it wasn't. It was just a long time to wait to get to the meatiness that was the back cover. Yeah. But I do want to have a read of one of Richard's books. I actually would recommend people to read this, but read this, as you said, as if you were reading somebody's diary. I think knowing that changed my whole slant on actually reading the book. Absolutely did mine as well. Again, we've said this so many times in the past, but talking to an author about the process, about what's inspired it, about where the books come from, it changes our perception of the words that we've read. Well, isn't that the reason why we do the podcast to get people to read more indie authors? Because actually, it does change your perception of the book and it's worthwhile. Anyway, speaking of writing, and we got flash fiction next time. We have got a flash fiction. There is an image all over our social media. And the deadline for flash fiction for this is the 11th of April. So you've still got time to get those stories written and get them sent in to us. To submissions at barebooks.co.uk. We'll have a read, see what we think. And we can't wait to actually share the best of the best on the next episode. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully I'll have a voice by then. (laughs) I hope so. Croaking my way through the podcast. You've had this for a while now. I have, but he's getting better. Yeah, but it's good to have you back on board, I have to say that. Thank you very much. We will see everybody next time with stories to tell. Yes, goodbye and speak to you next time. Thank you for joining us. Now you've had a listen, why not pop over and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Or if you want to send in your stories, email us at submissions at bearbooks.co.uk. Thank you.